Welcome to episode 26 of the Cyber Guy Podcast. I'm your host, retired FBI Special Agent Darren Mott. And in this episode, I'll discuss dealing with a cyber incident with Brent Pinnell and Hans Lemon of the cyber incident response company Control-Alt-Protect. So happy President's Day to everybody. I'm recording this on Monday, President's Day. So hope you are enjoying uh, the day off if you have it. I hope that you're enjoying a snow day if you're having that. If you're on one of the the many states that are underneath a winter storm warning, we are under that here, but it's just kind of cold. We don't have any snow or ice that I can tell, but who knows? Maybe tonight it'll be bad. Uh, But before I get to Brent and Hans, I want to take a moment to thank you for downloading and listening to this podcast. It's my mission to help people protect their homes and businesses from the myriad of cyber threats that are facing all of us daily. I know you have a lot of podcast options, and I really appreciate you taking the time to listen to me. Uh, I'm trying to bring you some short-form podcasts with my midweek quick hitters to, to kind of talk about cyber news kind of as it happens. So, again, I appreciate you taking the time to to, to listen to, to my podcast. I appreciate those folks who have reached out with questions, thoughts, and comments. I'm here to help you understand the, the cyber world and the, the cybersecurity world, the, the threats that are targeting you, your cyber risk in general. So feel free to avail yourself of my services. Uh, my email, Darren at thecyberguy.com, is listed in the notes section of this email. So like I said, feel free to, to hit me up anytime. I try to respond to everybody as quickly as I can. I also want to take a moment here to mention the tragedy that hit the FBI on February 3rd when Special Agents Laura Schwarzenberger and Daniel Alfin were killed and three other agents were wounded while executing a search warrant on a child pornography distribution case in Sunrise, Florida. It's important to note that agents, as agents, we go through an extensive process to plan out an operation like this. It's not like they said, hey, there's this guy in Sunrise, Florida, let's just go up to his door and tell him we want to do a search warrant. There's a lot of investigative steps that go through identifying who he is, understanding who he is, knowing if he had a violent past, if he has registered guns, things of that nature. Um, and then there's a whole process to build out who's going to be part of the search team, how you're going to approach the door, how you're going to, going to approach the back of buildings. Um, this was an apartment complex, so back of the building was a little different, I'm sure. I'm sure there were more than five agents there, but there were the five that went to the door. And unfortunately, the subject had surveillance, a digital uh, ring doorbell, I believe, so he was able to see them coming. He also had a rifle, and he basically ambushed them as they approached the door. I executed many of these warrants during my time in the FBI, and the walk up to the door is really the most dangerous part. That first one minute when you're up to the door and you're about to change someone's life, it becomes very dangerous. I guarantee you they, they did a lot of prep work to, to do how to do this safely, and it's just a tragedy in, in many, many ways. You can find lots of news stories on this tragedy, but say a prayer for Dan and Laura's families and the FBI family in Miami. I know there are some funds available to to help the families out, uh, and in memorials of that nature, you can find those where those are online. I, uh, if you're so inclined, feel, feel free to do that. Now for a quick little news story. There's my little news bumper. I really need to fix it. That's pretty lame to be quite honest, but it's kind of what I got right now. So as I work through this, so uh, on Friday, Bloomberg posted a lengthy investigative article on how China has compromised the computer supply chain of the company Supermicro. Supermicro makes motherboards and computer chips and sells them to all sorts of of big, big, big companies in the United States, Apple, Amazon, uh, things of that nature. Um, And if you check out my LinkedIn profile, you'll find a link to this article there. But if you do uh, Bloomberg and Supermicro, I guarantee you, you will find it. But in brief, basically what the story was, was the Chinese espionage apparatus infiltrated this motherboard and chip company and subsequently placed an extra chip 
a little thing about the size of a pencil eraser on motherboards that were being shipped to companies in the United States. And this little eraser, when activated, would send information of some sort back to China. The exact information is currently unknown, but because the, the little the little chip wasn't always active. It would activate at certain times, so it was hard to catch. But someone caught it, uh, advised the FBI, and there was an investigation that went into it, and there's a whole lot of background to this that the Bloomberg article gets into that I'm not going to get into here, lest I get myself in trouble for things I may or may not know. But I, I make this point on this article just to show this is an additional proof, not that we really needed it, that China uses every possible means to build their regional and their global hegemony, meaning they want to be the ultimate power in the world. They created, they wrote a book. There were two generals that wrote a book called Unrestricted Warfare in 1999, laid all this out for everyone to understand that they were going to use, they weren't going to attack and use military apparatus and, and get into a shooting war if they didn't have to. They would certainly, I'm sure, do that if they needed to as they build up their military. But there are a lot of other ways that they can do to infiltrate and uh, increase their their power. So uh, if you're curious at what they're looking to do that, through the political means, through the stealing of intellectual property, I mean, it, you know, China, the, the COVID-19, there's a certainly a rationale to believe that that was purposeful. I have no information on what that is. It just, it seems like it would be within the realm of what China would want to do. Now, do I think that they wanted to kill their own people? I don't think they don't care if they kill their own people. So that would make why COVID, they would release that on the world. But you know, there is certainly a perspective that it was an accident, and that certainly may be the case. Maybe they were testing it for use of bioweapons somewhere down the line, and this just kind of got out. I don't think we'll ever really know the true answer, but it's not outside the realm of possibility that it was a plan that they had in place. So um, I, I give you the Bloomberg article to go look at and read if you're so inclined. I hope to have the author of that article on the podcast within the next couple of weeks, and we'll discuss this more at length, kind of what they found through their investigation, just to give you an idea of how, you know, cybersecurity is more than just ransomware and hackers trying to steal your financial information. There are nation state actors, there are terrorist organizations that are looking to use the vulnerabilities that digital infrastructure has to do bad things. So uh, again, hopefully we'll have more on this later. I'm going to have a, a quick hitter podcast probably tomorrow to talk about this, the Biden administration uh, actions towards Confucius Institute and some other stuff that kind of ties the whole China apparatus into cybersecurity in general. So with that, let me welcome my guest, Brent Pinnell and Hans Lemon of the Birmingham Incident Response Company, Control-Alt-Protect. Brent, Hans, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Like I mentioned before we started recording, I appreciate you guys taking the time to uh, to talk to me. I know you're busy down. Every time I seem to talk to you, you're moving, going to help somebody somewhere because of all the, the cyber stuff going around. So I wanted to focus this podcast and what you guys do on incident response. Cause a lot of, I talk a lot about cybersecurity issues and what happens when bad things happen. But the one thing I haven't really talked about to any with anybody is when you become a victim, who do you call? I mean, you can call the FBI, but honestly, the FBI does not do incident response. They do investigation into crime. So they're not going to do a lot of fixing your networks and helping you recover from the problems you're having. So that's why I thought of you guys. We met a couple of years ago, talk cybersecurity stuff when you're just getting up and going. Um, so let's do a quick introduction. Um, give me a quick uh, overview of each of your experiences, what you do, why you came up with building this company. Either, either one you can start. <laughs> we'll, we'll go with Brent first. Uh, thank you for this opportunity, Darren. Um, 
Obviously, I'm, as you know, I'm a Bama graduate, so hopefully that won't offend too many people. Roll Tide. Um, roll Tide. <laughs> I did get my first taste of forensics uh, back in retail, worked with Target Corporation, um, went into banking, and then moved on to some COO positions with private corporations and found my calling in cybersecurity. Um, I'm certified personally in both digital and mobile forensics. As you can imagine, uh, having a business partner like Hans Lemons uh, enables me to focus on company directives, dealing with clients day in, day out, marketing, sales, quality control, all that fun stuff. Uh, but I do get to participate in instant response and I have learned a lot uh, from the team and just really just being there. And Hans and I met how many years ago, a long time ago, many years ago working on technology consulting contracts uh, on the, in the private sector. But I'll let, I'll let Hans tell us about his background. Oh, yeah, no, and also, Darren, yeah, thank you very much for having us on. Excited to be here. So uh, as Brandon said, yeah, we met a number of years ago, and it's uh, sort of an interesting start for me. I got involved really with technology during the dot-com boom uh, from a business perspective and during college. I uh, hailed from uh, the world of gaming journalism and game design, which is completely the opposite of what I'm doing now in some respects. But uh, I was a part of the big 2000 tech bubble pop and a victim of it, if you will, but that actually inspired me to get out and try some new things away from what I was doing. So I have a background in doing software development from business uh, workflow and analysis capability and application, and also from an MSP perspective, where I helped a lot of other businesses manage their IT infrastructure. So when I moved into the IT security uh, field, it turned out to just absolutely great segue. And uh, that has led me to focus on IT security now for, I guess, the last 13 years or so. And that has enabled me to work within the top 10 banking space and within a lot of the large law firms in the United States, and certainly within the uh, Fortune you know, set as well. But, you know, it's given me the opportunity to work with a lot of folks within uh, financial, legal, medical and technology slash engineering companies and that sort of stuff. And I've had a lot of really nice people. But I focus a lot on doing technical oversight for my company. But um, I, as Brent as well, as I'm focused on uh, is the response in digital forensics. And I'm certified in those areas. A lot of my time is spent helping people out of the um, unfortunate situations that they uh, end up in, which is always interesting. So, but uh, very much uh, an interesting um, start for me. I'm glad to be involved in this field. Never a dull moment. Great. And we'll talk about some of those unfortunate events as we get further along, but talk, talk a little bit about what is exactly Control Alt Protect? How'd you, how'd you come to form the company? What do you do? What's it doing now? Things like that. Sure. Um, Darren, we're a worldwide comprehensive forensic security firm. Um, that's, a, that's a mouthful, but we strategically focused our company in the forensic arena, um, and we've become synonymous with cutting-edge hacking detection, threat detection, and incident response. Uh, it's why our tagline is tomorrow's defense technology today. We could have expound upon that in many different ways, but that, that key detection that hacking persistence detection has separated us from from many in this industry and I, I like to use the analogy that we're the diagnostic cardiologist of IT 
um, because we do handle everything from the incident response to actual forensic analysis. And we have our own security operations center, um, stock sim, security incident event management. We do a lot of training, do a lot of expert witnessing in court. Um, but our company, as we started this in this crazy field, our company's evolved, obviously, and our our business, our clients generally come to us in three ways. Uh, we have those who retain us to proactively put detection and layers in place um, to ward off attacks and, and harden their security standards. We have the unfortunate clients that we, we inherit from, from hacks, uh, whether it's ransomware or malware, the unfortunate scenarios, those who have as we say, responsive. So they're not proactive. They wait until they're actually hit. And then a lot of clients we get working post-breach forensic cases um, for cyber insurance companies. And it's interesting, we didn't necessarily plan for that side of the business, but because we're a forensic firm, because we're comprehensive in detail and our ability to truly remove the footholds um, across the entire organization and look under every rock as part of our diagnostic cardiology uh, efforts. Um, we used to always say we're, we're the geeks that save you money, save your company, your associates, your clients, the reputation. We're that, we're that group of geeks. That's what we are. <laughs> Have you built a t-shirt yeah. yet that says diagnostic cardiologists of IT? Or trademarked it at least. That's a good line. You should, you, you, you should have you should have swag that says that on there. Most of our director of marketing, she'll be uh, she'll definitely take that and run with it. Sure. It should be a hashtag. Make it a hashtag and put it with everything. That'd be a neat T-shirt. Yeah, you give it away for every for every every fifth hack you your company gets, you get a free T-shirt for every fifth hack. So, so over the, over the past year, so obviously the cyber threat. Uh, spectrum has mod changes and modifies, evolves over time. So from your company's perspective, what are the top cyber issues you've had to respond to? Uh, so I, I know you're located in Birmingham. I assume the majority of your clients are Alabama, Southeast related, even though I'm sure you'll go anywhere. Is that correct? You'll, you'll speak to anybody who needs help. Yeah. So um, what is, what have you seen most? What's the big problem that people are dealing with? So if, if you're a, if, if someone listens to this podcast has a company, what is the one what are the top cyber issues they need to probably concern themselves from, from a risk perspective? Right. So, yeah, it's certainly the risks within the past couple of years have exploded in the things that we deal with. But probably the top items that we've been working with mostly been and the threats that we see in the uh, infiltrations and the um, different problems, mostly focus around business email compromise. So that's essentially where, you have a, a complete compromise or partial compromise of an email storage system uh, and also the related data storage systems, for instance, like breaches of Microsoft Azure or whatever uh, happens to be the case. In some cases, it's Gmail. And in a lot of cases, what we'll find is <clears throat> companies that have their entire history, the past entire um, history of the company since they started on that particular uh, email system. So you've got emails that sometimes stretch back six or seven years or sometimes longer, which very often we find that a lot of companies run their uh, system, their entire company off of the email. So you're seeing a lot of EPHI and PFEII in place. 
So that's a real significant concern. And um, <clears throat> we'll also see things like uh, a full breach where someone has um, clicked on a ransomware or something along those lines, or in the case of a uh, application that just acts as a Trojan horse and it opens up a back door into the system. Neither they don't have basic precautions in place <clears throat> to detect that kind of thing. So they establish a persistent uh, foothold. And uh, in that case, we see a lot of organized crime activity. And it's um, not so good because those things end up, uh, they get into the system with that persistent foothold. And they sit there and then they just uh, go quiet. And that's something that um, is fortunately or unfortunately, depending on how you look at it, uh, something that is just reaching out and uh, affecting a lot of people. It's uh, the really, really the sad part about it is, is that uh, a lot of the persistence detections are not in place there. But we also see, too, a lot of social engineering and phishing attacks. And that is, um, unfortunately, where people, uh, despite uh, all the education that's out there, just don't know any better not to click on emails. And they fall for telephone scams and things like that, which uh, acquire uh, personal information. And a lot of the crooks will run with it. It's amazing how sophisticated those things are these days. And then probably lastly, uh, we see a lot of ransomware cases. And unfortunately, we get a lot of those when it's too late. Occasionally, we'll get one where they pop in and they manage to stop it in process. But most of the time, it's when the entire systems have become encrypted. And that sometimes includes backups, unfortunately. So uh, those are usually our main uh, main uh, things we work with. And Darren, just to kind of add to what Hans has said, I mean, we both come from big bank environments. But for our listeners and viewers there, they're most likely coming from small to mid-cap companies. And what's unfortunate is that we are, when we do get an incident response call, and whether it's any of the scenarios that Hans just described, I like to say there's a, a head in the sand mentality. Um, they're not prepared. There are no security controls in place because, quite frankly, it's the invisible COVID-19 that I'm never going to get. And that's, it's a terrible tragedy. Um, if you, if you contact us at Control All Protect and you, you know, the countless number of ransomware calls we've got, um, as you said earlier, they called the FBI crying for help and the FBI has done an incredible job. They do an incredible job of investigation, but they're not incident response people. Uh, you don't call the FBI when your home is on fire. You call the fire department. Uh, if you're having a heart attack, you know, it, it's, you've got to call the right person. Uh, you've got to go see the right specialized person. And that I think there's just a significant level of respectfully of ignorance uh, among uh, the Southeast and our, our country in general. We do have this, you know, head in the sand mentality um, but it's time that we change that because let's face it, five and six years ago, when the top 10 banks were getting hit, companies like Control Alt Protect were focusing on the big banks because that's where the hacking uh, efforts were being focused. What's happened in our world is those, those financial institutions and those larger corporations, they've beefed up their data security protocols and their security controls. And now hackers, they have to go somewhere else. So, you know, three, four, five years ago, you didn't hear about small to mid-cap ransomware attacks 
and cyber attacks like you do now. Um, it's just, you know, the, the paradigm has changed. So it's time that as business owners and as citizens uh, of this incredible country we're in, we, we, we stop and say, okay, we either proactively take efforts to stop cybercrime, or we just accept that it's okay to fund terrorism and organized crime. So let me, that's, that's yeah. really the mentality we have to we have to take as a country. Yeah, it's great points. Let me let me follow up on on that a little bit here. So you mentioned obviously the most common ways in are, are social engineering, phishing attacks, and you've you got you both have heard me speak before, and, and you know you know my favorite line in my presentations is someone always clicks the link. That's why it works. If someone always clicks the link. So, so my follow-up question, yeah. which I think is interest, will be interesting to hear because I talk a lot about, you know, in the FBI, ninety percent of the cases we we ran started with a phishing attack. Someone clicked the link. Have you had any instances of the clients you've dealt with? You know, the obvi- obviously, I'm not expecting the specifics, but the, where there wasn't a it wasn't a uh, spear fish. No one clicked a link. They found a vulnerability within the network that they were able to exploit and get in without anybody knowing it was going on. At that point, have you had any instances of that? And how often does that occur if it does? And I'll talk, we have absolutely seen that, and we're seeing more of that. I think one of the more common um, tactics being deployed at the moment is a calendar invite from a known trusted resource. Or ah, but, trusted but, 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 but let me stop you there. Someone still is clicking a link to make that happen. Well, that's true. That's true. <laughs> um, but where I was going to go with that is if, if that one doesn't work, uh, we're seeing the PDF attachment. So I know they're, it's on a link, but they're clicking on an attached email. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, still something to click. Those are a little bit, a little bit different, a little right. more sophisticated. Um, but there are absolutely some vulnerabilities. And you're talking about uh, a lot of the old, what we see old school vulnerability hacks prior to the email phishing trend that we have now. And we have absolutely encountered those. And I'll let Pam's dig in a little bit on some of that. Well, no, that's right. So one of the popular things to do is go Shodan surfing uh, for a lot of these guys. What they'll do is hop on a Shodan.io or several service like that. And they'll just drop your IP into it. And from a 30,000 foot view, it'll give you network reconnaissance details. So they'll see if there's any uh, great example is RDP, open RDP. So we've had some cases of uh, dental offices, for instance, that have got <clears throat> um, RDP that's open. And they'll, uh, and of course, there are other industries too. Beyond that, we've uh, seen other, uh, say, within the accounting field and things like that as well. But uh, they'll, because of these of use, right? So people want to be able simply to check it, hop it in their machines from home. They don't have the security protocols enabled on it. So they just um, pop into the RDP session and either they've got like a guest account, a guest account uh, that has been activated, or they'll use common passwords on the uh, admin side. And they just, uh, through scraping across the internet, are able to figure out what that is, either through the dark web or through other sources where people do things like reuse passwords or use simple passwords. So they'll hop into it by RDP. That's one very, very obvious way to get into it. We've seen things, too, where uh, they will look at IPs and they'll have their camera systems online. That's a real popular one as well. Mm. And their camera systems, of course, that's very easy to simply look up the default admin creds and a lot of the vendors that put in camera systems, this shouldn't be a surprise to anyone on this podcast, but these um, camera systems using default creds, it's easy to log into it. Uh, one of our clients uh, many, many years ago uh, had a system 
that was uh, active and online uh, that uh, was pointing a uh, camera system that was pointing at this board or at the board there at the company. And it uh, had the Wi-Fi password displayed right on the main board okay. so everybody could access it. And it was shared between the three or four different buildings that were nearby. So it was pretty easy just to get access to it if you wanted to. If you knew where he was, you could do some simple lookup and figure it out because the company name was right there on the board too, along with some other pretty salient details. Um, so things like that, yeah, um, are really, really obvious. Uh, I think probably the other area that we've seen too is um, unencrypted uh, wireless uh, printers and things along that line that are broadcasting at high frequency and uh, high power. So depending on where you are, say within an office stack or in an office environment, you could access those too. And very, very frequently those multifunction devices have all their documents have been stored within memory. So it's just a simple matter of going through and then looking at those documents that are stored. Mm-hmm. So things like check stubs and payment information and other EPHI or PII, for example. What I would like to mention is we've been fortunate to catch it and catch this uh, persistence attack or method, but it's just the use of cell phone vulnerabilities. I mean, we all know Apple comes out with iOS, whatever, right? And unfortunately, that's a what people don't realize is that that's literally a target list for criminals, for cyber criminals. So if you're not updating that iOS, then those vulnerabilities uh, literally put you put a bullseye on your on your mobile device. And we have already seen uh, a lack of, of upgrading or patching with mobile devices and those being attempted to you. So the vulnerabilities are being exploited. Fortunately, we're catching it before they progress and, and move laterally within the organization. Um, but bottom line is, those tactics, those more difficult Internet of Things and vulnerability lists that we have all been used to for the last decade are are being utilized more and more because of email phishing awareness. So, yes, right. we are absolutely seeing that. Right, and you look at that, the you look at the vulnerability. You look at those the operating system vulnerabilities. The the thing the the attack on the water treatment plant in Florida. You guys know what window, what uh, Windows version they were running, right? Windows Seven, which has no more support, yep. so there are no more patches coming out. So all those vulnerabilities right. are found. They you can use them. Yep. So, uh, so uh, Hans, one th- or something, frankly. Yeah. So like Hans, one, Hans, one thing you mentioned, or I just want to, I just want to circle back on it, just so people know what we're yeah. talking about. You're talking about RDP and Shodan. So RDP is re- remote desktop protocol. It's a standard mm-hmm. configuration most computers have that allow you to basically remote in and, and have like a desktop. Shodan is a service. I know that, and I the only reason I even know this is because we use it at the National Cybersecurity Operations Center as part of our threat team. So Shodan is a as a service you can anybody can purchase. Bad guys, good guys, anybody guys. And then that, oh, yeah. like you're saying, that you if you know the IP address of a company, you stick it in there. Shodan is out there looking for those vulnerabilities, and you'll know everything that's 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 open, right? That's correct. Yeah, yeah, we're a lot of it anyway, certainly, sure. uh, because. There's a lot of it does a lot of visibility, a lot of testing on the periphery of networks, and it's amazing what services it can pick up because it does a baseline and then it sits there and notices all the changes. There are actually monitoring aspects of Shodan that you can purchase where you simply um, purchase a corporate plan and you can type up a list of IPs or domains that you want to monitor, and it'll notify you as new services come on or offline, depending. 
So you talked about ransomware. So I'm going to jump ahead in my questions and come back to the other ones. But I I have a question here about, you know, what's a typical incident response to ransomware look like? Because companies need to understand, I think, if they get hit with ransomware, what's that going to look for them? Most companies, you know, have their fingers crossed and and they're figuring, I don't have anything anyone would want. No one's going to click at a link. I'm safe. And we'll talk about that that rationale a little later as well. But so when you do a typical, and I guess my guess is there are no typical ransomware incidents, but what does that look like? What do you do for a company who's got everything locked up? Do you recommend they pay the ransom? Do you recommend they don't? Are you able to fix it if they don't have good backups? What's that look like from your perspective? So that when a company gets hit, this is, these are some things they can expect to happen. You know, then we recently had a CPA and I won't even say what area in the country because this guy had been in business for uh, almost 30 years. He called us, inter- inter- interested in our services, inquired about them, never heard back from him. Fast forward a year, he calls us, he's completely ransomed. Mm. The first time he called us, he was concerned. The second time, as I told him, you're already in, in the grave. Um, he was completely locked down. It was a very very elaborate attack, including backups and whatnot. So we get one of two calls, you know. Um, so a typical IR for that is, hey, we've been hit. Can you help us? Um, or sometimes we get the, the call of, we don't know where we are. We think it's mid-execution. There are two impacted devices, one server. You know, but there are really two ransomware calls. One is we're completely encrypted. And the other is we're partially encrypted. Um, but unfortunately, uh, they don't know how to stop the spread. They don't know how to you know, contain it uh, because, respectfully, they're relying on their IT company because there's this. <laughs> so the typical instant response to ransomware is, hey, I contacted my IT person and they looked at me like I was speaking a different language. And the reality is they were because they're not trained to handle uh, our, you know, that's most are not. It's just two different worlds, right? Um, but hands can tell you a little bit more uh, about them. And that, that's generally what we get, right? It's one of two calls. It's unfortunate. There's not a lot we can do from an hour perspective when you've been ransomed. There's not a lot most, anyone can do. Uh, there are some, a few exceptions to that. Um, and obviously, we're going to focus on data preservation in those backup files. But for the most part, when you've been ransomed, it, the show is over. And no, we will never, ever recommend paying Bitcoin ransomware, uh, Bitcoin ransoms. Never. We have never today as a company. And we won't in the future. So quick question to that. So when you, so um, actually I had a question. I, I've, I've suddenly forgotten what that question, it was a good question. I know it was, I, I forgot. I'll come back to Just it. So, so let, let's go to, I'll go to hands on this. I'll come back to my question. But it'll come back to me okay. in a second. Sorry about that. Hands, go ahead. All right. Yeah, no. So uh, continuing, are we continuing on the ransomware question? Yeah, yeah. So, so, so you're, you're primarily the technical person. What do you, what do you do for right. uh, that? Reminds yes. me, uh, hold on. I just thought of my question. It'll, it'll go to your answer. So, so are you okay, able okay. to, are you able when you're looking at a system that's been hit with ransomware, are you able to acquire any evidence that the, you can use to tell, tell the customer, this is the particular variant of ransomware you have or provide it to the FBI to say, here is, you know, this was any, any motet ransomware or some other, you know, this, we know this is Russian or Chinese. 
Oh, yeah, sure. So with most ransomware, the uh, different lock screens are in place in the different interactions uh, insofar as what they demand of the customer and how they demand of it and the actual style it's in help identify what particular ransomware strain it is. Mm -hmm. So that's an easy giveaway. Uh, very often what you can do is uh, use just do a forensic investigation of the PC on the spot and you can figure out uh, where the actual file originated just by backtracking, by looking at the machine itself. It'll tell you what the executable is. And if you want, you can submit it to things like VirusTotal or other places like that to help identify it. I got you. Um, so that type of thing. It just varies. Uh, there are four or five different good ways to track that type of thing down. So um, generally speaking, yeah. So basically, yeah, I, I would say, you know, containment is a big, a big deal for us. I mean, it's always it, okay. preservation containment. How much is spread? Right. So if it's only hit one server, uh, first of all, you know, unplug everything possible um, <laughs> until we can get on site. That's generally what it's like. And I think that the message our listeners need to understand, and we recently had this happen as in the last few months, they called us and said, well, we've got one PC that's been encrypted, but we're going to let the others continue. And, and uh, <laughs> immediately we said, no, you're not. You're going to shut down for the day. So we need our listeners need to really ask themselves, what does it cost? Because you have no choice. You can't, you can't continue to run uh, operations as normal when you have a, a live instant response with a ransomware in your network because soon those computers that are continuing to work and those servers that you think are safe within a matter of hours are, are going to be different, right? Mm -hmm. We know that. So, uh, right. yeah, you, we have to sit back as – as C-suite individuals, as owners of businesses, and go, okay, maybe we need to start listening to these diagnostic cardiology geeks that are warning us before we become another statistic. And when when you see the quote for protecting your environment or putting detection in place to prevent this from happening, you have to weigh it against what's the equity valuation if I'm down for six, seven, eight days. I mean, we had a hospital in Alabama recover in less than six days from a full ransomware attack. That That is a, a, I mean, that was an effective business continuity disaster recovery plan. It worked. I know that the, the hospital administration would love to say, well, we would love for it to be 48 hours, but that's not realistic. Mm -hmm. uh, disaster recovery on a, on a cyber incident of this magnitude it's not recovered in 48 hours so you know a lot of a lot of what we the instant response typical scenario varies depending right. on the preparedness of the victim right um, and i will say this no two are ever alike or haven't been for us today it is it is an interesting bag of tricks that's a good point. On, that, know, that's yeah. an interesting point you make, and it segues into this next question. What are what are some commonalities you see in victims, if any? I mean, if there aren't any, that's an easy easy answer. Is there aren't any? But if there are some commonalities, what would those look like? I think, and I, I think our, the commonalities we see are just a significant lack of business uh, disaster recovery, business continuity. Um, ordinarily. The people, and not always, but ordinarily, the folks we're seeing uh, who are victims of 
let's just say full-scale ransomware. They have very little data security controls. They have very little password management. Um, they have a very uh, unexperienced staff. And then there are a few exceptions. Um, I would say the more sophisticated ransomware attacks. So, you know, much more sophisticated is the only word I know to use. Um, sophisticated attack would be absolutely where the CEOs or whatever are uh, the director of technology, they know they're not ignorant. Uh, it's just an incredibly orchestrated attack with footholds. And we've seen some of those like with little off tokens and emails. Now, again, you said it's clicking. And most of those involve email phishing to some degree. They begin with phishing and then they progress to you know, multiple infrastructures, whether it be OneDrive or whatever, shared data files. Um, and ordinarily, the more sophisticated attacks, the hackers have been present for months, not weeks, months, patiently waiting, patiently gathering more and more footholds within the organization until they finally hit that backup file. And I, I think if we give something that's in common with, is everyone's here in the headlights shocked that their backup files are destroyed and that their IT guy or their IT company didn't realize they were backing up encrypted data, right? Or backing up files with with payloads that could be bloomed and encrypted. So, you know, it's just this terrible scenario where the CEO and board of directors and COO and director of technology, they're looking at us going, how? How did this happen? It's because, you know, I, we say all the time, hackers need three things. They need talent, credentials, skills, they need people, humans, and time. And if they have all those things and they're patient, they're gonna get us eventually if we don't have the right security stuff in place. But and is there anything else you would say on that as far as Yeah, to add to those excellent points, uh, frankly, we live in a society, certainly within business society, that is focused on box checking and just doing things for the purpose of compliance needs. Uh, security is not a part of their primary culture. It's seen as an annoyance. Like most things in IT, it's seen as a loss leader. It doesn't generate profit. So it, as a result of that, uh, it is necessary for business process, but it's pushed off to the side. And what really, uh, that is one of the commonalities, quite frankly, that we see across all, all many of the businesses that we work with. There are some exceptions, of course, but the uh, thing is, is that uh, the danger of doing box checking, of course, is that it leaves all the uh, a lot of things undone. Um, and when you don't have a security-focused culture, that turns into a long-term train wreck for the organization. Uh, it must be something that's drilled into from the top uh, down, on uh, from everywhere, from the uh, you know the CEO, C-level suite, all the way down to the uh, to the janitor. Quite frankly, anyone that interacts with a um, computer needs to be aware of the dangers and the risks that are associated with it. And IT and IT security need to work hand in hand with those different levels within the organization. Because quite frankly, the people that are in front of the computer every single day, those are your frontline workers. Those are your frontline defenses. They're the people that are going to be clicking on things, are going to be working with the information, and ultimately 
no matter how many technical controls or policies, what being policy isn't security granted, but all those type of things in place, you cannot protect 100% against that. So that uh, level of education, educating people is very important. And that level of, um, I hate to use the word ignorance, but that level of, but it, there it is. But that type of thing really needs to be replaced by uh, educating everybody within the organization about the importance of what the IT security it's got to be something that the company lives and breathes as much as any other part of their business. So, so uh, we see a lot of that, certainly. So my guess is you have not come to a company yet where where they said, well, you know, we knew we were going we to get hit with it eventually. This is our time. So we, we, we understand it. I'm going to guess. Yeah, that, yeah that, certainly that too as well. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, one of the things that we're seeing, I guess, with the checking boxes, we, we are seeing just a ridiculous amount of risk analysis that's been done. Well, we've completed HIPAA gap analysis. We can complete risk analysis. We're good. Did Who did that audit? And who, who vetted the person that's done that audit? Who did your network security gap analysis? And so when we get there on an incident response, oftentimes, let's look at banks, for example. Banks have robbery procedures. They have, each person in the bank has a checklist. So where is our post-cyber procedures checklist, cyber incident, cyber reach checklist? Uh, most of the time, they're just not prepared, um, but they think they're prepared because they've had whatever check, whatever box checked by you know whoever did this uh, vulnerability assessment. Um, and, and it's unfortunate. There are a lot of companies out there that are cutting corners that are running just some plug-and-play software and providing, you know, beautiful reports. But that doesn't really prevent you um, from being hacked. I can go buy a PET scan machine and put in my home and literally line my neighbors up. But I can't tell you what it, if I can't read the report and the analysis and, and customize that into a cybersecurity program or a health plan. To get you back on track and it was worthless um just think about today i got an email and this is this is scripted thread intel dating uh, dating back to 2017. keeper security comes out with an email today talking about the cone breach so we got 3.2 whatever 3.27 whatever billion accounts it's being called the the grandfather of all breaches I mean, everyone from LinkedIn, Yahoo, Bitcoin, Netflix, everyone's involved in that. I think the staggering fact in all of that notification and that, that actual occurrence is that 4.7 people are estimated to be on the World Wide Web. 4.7 billion. 4.7 billion, is that what you mean? Yeah, and, and so... Roughly with this one compromise called Comb, that's 70% of the global internet users have been hit. So, I mean, you know, from, from an awareness and preparation standpoint, checking boxes is not going to get it done anymore. Right. It's just not. You can't rely on that firewall and my IT guy and my cyber insurance policy no, you have to go further than that now. That doesn't work. It's 2021. Um, so, yeah. 
sorry to no, rant, but that's, that, right. that's what we see. And, and unfortunately, I think there is a lot of common, uh, common respect or common ignorance. And in, in when we arrive on an instant response, uh, we're still going to be able to run. No, you're not. When we get there, everything's shutting down. Yeah. So we don't have a choice, right? Yep. Yeah. Go ahead, Hans. I was going to say that yeah, there is a process, of course, that we go through with all things. Uh, certainly with an instant response and I'm probably going to run over some ground that everybody's very comfortable with, but, um, an initial arriving on the scene, you first have to figure out what's going on. You have to calm people down. That's one of the most important things because everybody's in a panic and you have to establish organization as far as reporting interaction with the sea level and also the technical people that you're working with, not to mention the people on the outside of the process which are the folks that are communicating with customers and the communication establishment with say legal teams and that sort of thing as you get very deeper into it. But once you uh, get into the triage phase, you've got to figure out first what's going on and where things are and then move swiftly to containment. Mm -hmm. And within that containment phase, that is uh, essentially what it sounds like, which is isolating the uh, problem and then uh, patching it or putting it in the putting in the patchwork basically to stop it from moving further within the organization, determining where it came from and then uh, isolating it so that it can't affect other parts of the organization. And once you move into that uh, from the containment phase uh, in the uh, you move into essentially the repair and remediation part of it too. And that uh, is always involved uh, certainly a lot of discussions on all sides to get that stuff done. Um, and that is uh, sometimes a political process as well as a technical process. But you try to isolate yourself from the rest of the team and the rest of the folks that you're, so you can get things done in a very, very effective fashion. And of course, there's once you have all this stuff sorted out and you've solved all the uh, containment issues and you've uh, sourced out where the problem's coming from and you've fixed all that, you have to figure out what to do after the fact. Not only do you have to restore the business systems and work with the IT side, but the other part of it too is um, the fallout insofar as how it's going to affect the business long term. How do you manage communications to the public? What do you say and what do you not say? How do you con do you contact insurance? What do you say to insurance? That sort of thing. What do you say to legal? What does uh, legal say to the world? There are a lot of many facets to go along with these ransomware cases in general IR that have to be taken into consideration. So just to lay all that out there because we really didn't dive it into it in a significant number, but I wanted to point that out. Yeah, and I would I would guesstimate that around somewhere around eighty percent of the cases we've worked, if we could line those impacted victims up and give them a survey, every one of the eighty percent of those, probably all of them, but I would say at least eighty percent would say, okay, we should have had a plan in place for communication to tell Jane Doe and John Smith, you can't put on Facebook, hey, I'm. I'm sitting here and my computer won't work because we're under cyber attack or text your family. For, I mean, unfortunately, a reputational uh, situation, if HR doesn't, if we don't have a policy governing and, and legally gagging that, um, it can be costly because the, unfortunately, as you can imagine, as Hans said, the legal implications begin. Uh, it doesn't take long with social media for stuff to get blown out of proportion um, or uh, become reputationally damning. So let's say I gave you a time machine. You go back in time and talk to these companies before they came, became victims. What would be the what would be the things you would tell them, and the simplest things they should do 
to a reduce their cyber risk so that they don't become a victim in a week when that ransomware or whatever ever, ever, whatever other event hits. Wow. Well, there are some really, really good things I think that we can say uh, from that standpoint. If I could cop into a time machine and wish it existed, it would just be fantastic. But I would say that you need to come as a corporation, they really need to focus on essential basic security measures. Uh, Brendan mentioned earlier password uh, password complexity. Uh, that's a real important one. Uh, and certainly things very basic like multi-factor authentication, 2FA. You would think that everybody would be up to speed on that these days, but that's certainly not the case. There a, a lot of the folks we talk to are just absolutely surprised that such a thing exists, really. So, so quick, I mean, let, me, let me interrupt you here yeah, for please. a second. So, so, yeah. so of the companies you've met, if you had to estimate how many companies have not, don't well don't even use multi-factor authentication is it the majority is it half is it minority what, what do you think rough estimate done it to be exactly i would say less than 30 percent. it's increasing but it's it's certainly less than three out of ten less than 30 percent use yes. it or don't or use it are using MFA. So 70% have no idea how to use it or aren't using it. Right. Or, wow, and here, okay. here's, here's the problem, Darren. We see, well, we have MFA or two-factor on our email. Right. Okay, what else do you have? So it's almost, again, we're checking the box. Yeah, we have multi-factor. Our Office 365, has, we have that. What else do you log into? <laughs> right. You know, it's just not comprehensive. So, mm-hmm. again, there's that lack of of uh, ensuring all areas are just are adequately secure. And especially now with work from home, my guess is they're, they're not using MFA for work from home connection to the networks to do what they're doing. No, you're right. They're not. They're not. Absolutely right. They don't have it at the gateway. They don't have it at, um, at their office instances. They don't have it in, in any number of things, quite frankly. The vast majority of services that we run across are completely unsecured. Hmm. And it's uh, completely endemic. So I apologize, Hans. I, I interrupted your your thought process there. You were talking about no, MFA. No, so, no. So, so, so carry uh, on. Sure carry on. Just following <laughs> up on that. Yeah, it's just shocking how many folks out there don't understand MFA, the basic stuff like that. And, and I would say also, um, so education is a really important part because it, we talked earlier about how the employee is really the first line. So they're the folks working with the data. So they need to be the most aware of what the security threats are. So of course. Uh, security awareness training, security training in general, um, and continuing ongoing efforts by the company to educate everybody. It's very important. And not to mention thing, uh, obvious things like phishing testing, getting people to, uh, to uh, run a campaigns against organizations and things along those lines too. That would go a long way to get a lot of folks up to speed. Of course, I say that um, sometimes that's a very difficult process. So I... Uh, some organizations are more resistant than others. It just depends on how uh, each company. So, but um, at any rate, yeah, I would say that uh, those are some of the uh, more more major things that could be done that would uh, solve a lot of those problems. Brent, what do you think? Are there some more there too? Yeah, I would just add, just don't rely on IT professionals alone. Don't, the guy who is ensuring that your backup is in place, um, you know, so don't rely on IT professionals and, and then test the backup procedures. So, a lot, you know, these are two that sort of go uh, hand in hand. We find oftentimes that 
we'll interview someone after an incident and, and say, okay, well, your backups were, were destroyed, they were encrypted. Did you, had you ever tested the backup procedures? No. I mean, seriously, would we get on a rocket and, and go to another planet or, or attempt to without testing that rocket? No, I wouldn't get on it. So why are you trusting your proprietary information, your backup, your livelihood, your client's livelihood without testing the backup? And it's amazing how many companies just don't do that. Um, but at minimum, vet, vet your backup procedures and vet your IT professionals make certain that someone is have a third party audit them for uh, their complexity their knowledge and their ability to assist you when you have a cyber incident I notice i didn't say if you had one it's when you have one right and do yeah. most of these companies so this i'm going to throw you aside uh, a curveball question here do most of these companies you deal with have all of their infrastructure on site? Are any of them using cloud services? How does that how does that interaction look? What does it look like? If you are you better having everything in the cloud because then if your desktops get hit with encryption, your stuff is still saved in the cloud, or how does that work? That's a million dollar question. That's a, that one all night, all day. Oh man, we we see a mixed bag, and you're asking. Uh, it's funny you ask this. You know, as and I have, we we constantly, as our team, we study cloud vulnerabilities. Um, the reality is what I said earlier. Um, cloud is great. I mean, I think it's great, but there are pros and cons to each, and uh, it is a mixed bag. Um, I will say that from a cloud perspective, recently we've seen less attacks within those infrastructures. But it doesn't mean that they're, you know, they have an amnesty and, and right. some sort of defense. It's sort of like uh, we've recently come into, uh, within the last week, someone who said, well, we have Apple devices. We're good. Really? No, that's not the case anymore. Um, so, again, there's a lot of misconceptions that, well, we're cloud and we're okay. Maybe. But you brought up a great point, Darren, with remote users. The landscape, the surface attack areas for small to mid-cap businesses through this pandemic has increased by whatever you want to say, five times, maybe exaggerated a hundred times, but regardless, it's significantly increased. The Wi-Fi at your employee's home could already be compromised with malware from the kids playing games or whatever. Uh, I mean, they're trusting a user not owning your own devices um, and sending them out. I mean, we advise our clients all the time, you, you need to buy laptops. It's a lot cheaper to purchase devices and send them home for remote working sessions and put in, put in uh, mobile device management that you can contain and eliminate those problems when they pop up. Um, so, you know, the need for next generation antivirus and mobile device management with remote remote working guidelines uh it's changed i mean it's totally different so i, I wouldn't say i know cloud makes it a lot easier um but devices or data stored on local devices has some significant advantages uh it's not in someone else's control so it, it all depends on you know the 
the skill level of the IT team or the individuals involved. Well, I think it's a matter of time before the bad guys figure out how those connections work, how if yep. the majority of your infrastructure is in a cloud environment, they're going to figure out how to exploit that cloud environment and screw you that way. Absolutely. And that's what we're already seeing some of it, yeah. Yeah. Oh, we've got some great examples of that, Darren. As a matter of fact, uh, we've been, we worked a case um, where all the remote services like QuickBooks and um, AT&T and uh, Adobe and things like that for a particular client had been completely compromised. Um, and the actual, the, the vendors themselves had no internal controls to stop people from setting up false accounts because they had the core credentials or the core information related to the person. It's like a case of identity theft gone completely awry. Hmm. But uh, essentially a lot of the um, big, uh, big vendors just have got, you would think that these the big companies would have some excellent internal controls for stopping false activity from happening and impersonation, but that was not the case at all. And there's a lot of uh, a lot of concern associated with that. Certainly, uh, that's uh, was an interesting case. Brent, did you want to elaborate on that? You're gonna laugh at me. Actually, literally, as we're on this call, get a instant response from a client. This is what it says: Someone just logged into my uh, Alabama State tax account and filed unemployment. I can't read the rest of it to be uh, give away the PII, but mm-hmm. basically using their social, exploiting that while we're on the call. So I have to confess that uh, I missed your your uh, that last part. So I'm sorry, Hans, what did you say? No, it's fine. It was a discussion about how third-party vendors for a particular client had become completely compromised, things like Adobe, Microsoft, um, uh, you know, QuickBooks, et cetera. And the internal controls in place at those companies were not able to prevent them from being impersonated. So yeah. you would have, they would shut down one account and then the person would then immediately open up another one. And there was nothing that the big companies could do about it except just to shut down another one. They didn't have any yeah. sort of regulation there. Yeah, and we do. We're working with um, Darren with both FBI and Secret Service on that particular case. Um, and an attempt just to stop as much as we can the cloud, cloud environment, uh, a third party compromise. Uh, there are hit lists within the dark web once you become targeted and your data, they have a live email that's active and they have a good address and they can start, they know your social, they get enough information on you, they start taking out payday loans and, and doing a lot of nefarious things, um, all all based around monetary um, uh, gain, obviously, you know, there, there's some sort of profit criminal profitability there, but cloud environments are, are very, it's a, there's a big misconceived thing uh, out there. Oh, well, I'm gonna be okay, we're gonna move. We won't have to buy servers. We won't have to update our switches. Well, not necessarily. So um, yeah, the, the, that we need to, uh, I would say, analyze the threat model for, for your client, have someone um, who's trained analyze what's best for you. I think possibly a hybrid model is a more responsible approach versus one way or the other. It's certainly not the the less, you know, it's much more expensive to do that from a budgeting perspective. Um, But uh, when these breaches happen and they're over and all the attorneys have been paid and all the credit protection has been paid and the forensic 
analysts have been put. Um, if there are no class action lawsuits, uh, when the equipment's been repurchased and everything's back up and running, uh, our victims who are become clients look back and say, man, we should have had some, some of this stuff in place. They would have saved hundreds of thousands of dollars because these breaches do cost a lot. And that's probably the key thing there. If you do it early, it may cost you some, some money on the front end to do education and stuff like that, but it's going to save you money at the back end because the average cost for a, for an incident uh, is rough for a data breach is roughly what's a, the last number I saw was 3.1 million or, or something like that. So, yeah, yeah, and the major ones are definitely that way. But even the small business email compromises. Well, we had one recently. It was just one. I say it's been two months ago, but I mean, it was one business email, one person's cloud interest, one person's profile, and this cost them six hundred thousand dollars. Wow! Did they? Yeah. So let me ask you this question: Did they? Did they detect it within 24 hours? Because if they did, they, there's a way to contact. I oh, they, they did. Oh, you're shaking your head, so I assume they did not. So yeah, well, they're, they're they long did not. gone. They were long not gone. a client, and no, they did not. Yeah. <laughs> okay, long gone after. That. Well, gentlemen, I greatly appreciate your time to, to talk. All this stuff is very interesting. It's a great perspective, and companies need to understand and that you know this. They need to be in ahead of incident response and behind it. So if if someone is a victim and they want to get in touch with you, how do they do that? They can email us at info at controlaltprotect.com. So instead of control alt delete, <laughs> it's control, spell out control, A-L-T, protect.com. We're always available at 877-CYBER-911. Or just go to the site, controlaltprotect.com, and uh, contact us that way. Well, again, gentlemen, I appreciate it. Thank you for the time. I hope you have a, a dry, warm week, but it doesn't look like it's going to be the case here in Alabama. It doesn't. It certainly does not, Darren. It's great to talk to you as always. You too. Really enjoy it, Darren. Thank you very much. Thanks. Have a good one. That'll do it for this episode of the Cyber Guy Podcast. Thank you again for listening. Please spread the word because the more people that understand the threats that are targeted, they can assess their risk and hopefully proceed wisely as they go about their digital lives. Remember, knowledge is protection. If you have any thoughts or comments on this or any of my other podcasts, please please email me at darren at thecyberguy.com. You can find me on LinkedIn. Darren Mott, D-A-R-R-E-N-M-O-T-T. Remember, in my email, cyber is spelled C-Y-B-U-R. Thanks again for listening. Have a good week.